This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 13, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. Just want to begin by stating that this is an official episode. This is episode 13 of the second season. It is not a bonus episode. So what does that really mean? Bonus episodes are those episodes I do in between the real episodes in order to give you consistent content while I work on the ongoing story, which is, of course, the first century of Islam after the death of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Bonus episodes may eventually be taken down. I'm not sure yet if we're going to do that, but I'll discuss it a little bit more in the outro to the show. So for now, I just want to let you know what we are doing. We are continuing the story of the first century of Islam after the Prophet's death, and we're going to begin covering the uh, Caliphate of Uthman. And for this episode in particular, we're going to mostly discuss the events that took place in Egypt while Uthman was Caliph. So we'll get right into that. Inshallah, show notes will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman1. Uthman is U-T-H-M-A-N and then the number one. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and get into the show. Here we go with Season 2, Episode 13. We'll begin our story by first taking a look at the main character Uthman ibn Affan, anhu. Now we won't go deep into the details of his life because we've already covered that in an earlier episode. Instead, we're going to try to understand the character of Uthman and how he was viewed by the people he ruled. One of the most important things to understand about Uthman is that he was an old man when he became caliph. He was actually 70 years old. And in a time when it was rare for people to live past their 50s, he was considered ancient. Another thing to understand about Uthman was that he came from one of the most powerful and influential families in the Arabian Peninsula. He was a member of the famous Umayyah clan, which was a leading clan among the Quraysh. In fact, the Umayyas were the main clan to resist the message of Islam during the early days of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. Abu Sufyan, the most prominent member of the Umayyah clan, led two battles against the Muslims of Medina. So Uthman was going against his family 
and positioning himself as an enemy of his family when he accepted Islam. And let's be clear about one thing. Uthman was certainly one of the earliest people to accept the message of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And like most of the other members of his clan, Uthman was also a successful merchant. He was very wealthy, both before and after the Prophet's migration to Medina. But despite his wealth and his family and his many connections, Uthman was most renowned for his piety. In fact, Ibn Umar, the son of Umar ibn al-Khattab, was quoted as saying, We used to regard Abu Bakr as the best, then Umar, and then Uthman. And there are several occasions where Uthman donated large sums of money in the cause of Islam, and as a final proof of his piety and love for Islam, Uthman was the only companion to have been married to two of the Prophet's daughters at different times. The first one died, and then he married a second daughter. But despite all of these wonderful attributes, history has not been so kind to Uthman. Perhaps it's because the beginning of the fracturing of Islam happened during his time. Perhaps it's because his reign has been so heavily scrutinized, much more heavily scrutinized than those that came before him. Perhaps it's because the man that came before him, Omar ibn al-Khattab, and the one who came after him, Ali ibn Abi Talib, are held in such high regards in our minds. Whatever the case, it seems that we always find ourselves comparing Uthman to someone else, particularly Omar and Ali. And unfortunately, we're going to do much of the same today as well. Because however unfair it may be to Uthman, he followed a giant of a man in Umar ibn al-Khattab. And Uthman's reign followed a period of unimaginable growth and advancement for the Muslim empire. One of the attributes that his predecessor, Umar ibn al-Khattab, was best known for was his ability to micromanage. We've discussed in earlier episodes how quick Omar ibn al-Khattab was to recall his governors and his generals that he thought were living too extravagant of a lifestyle. We've also discussed Omar's tendency to walk the streets of Medina searching for problems or issues that demanded his immediate attention. And Omar was known to keep a firm eye on how the money under his care was spent. This attention to detail on Omar's side, 
on Omar's part led to his subordinates and his governors being equally attentive. It led them to always stay on their toes and to be very careful and to make sure they knew how every dinar was being spent and to make sure that every cent could be accounted for. But Uthman was not like that. He was an older man. He did not have the same energy and vigor that Omar did. Besides, that just wasn't part of Uthman's character. He was much more lenient, much more easygoing. Unfortunately, this leniency only encouraged restlessness, discontent, and in some cases, even fraud. Even today, Uthman's legacy does not do him justice. While he is universally loved by Sunni Muslims, he is often considered inferior and even dishonest by the Shia. Many of them believe that Uthman became the ruler unjustly and at the expense of Ali. And while Sunni Muslims do love Uthman, he is still not as well known as the two caliphs who came before him, namely Abu Bakr and Omar. But before we get into the story of Uthman's administration and his reign as caliph, it's important that we understand the Muslim world that he ruled over. First, it is most likely that Muslims were in the minority of the very land they ran. They were just coming off these amazing conquests of the Persian and Byzantine empires. So the Muslims, who at this time were still mostly Arab, were ruling over a huge swath of land full of people who were neither Arab nor Muslim. However, it should be noted that even though the Muslims were a minority, Islam was rapidly growing as thousands of these conquered people were entering Islam. And let's be clear here that these people weren't forced to become Muslim. That just wasn't a thing that the early Muslims were interested in. They did not like to force people to become Muslim. That is a myth. However, it was definitely more convenient to be Muslim at this time. There was very little opportunity for advancement in this new government unless you were Muslim. Sure, there were instances of Christians and Jews and Zoroastrians who may have been clerks or secretaries or artisans and things like that, but there was no way a Christian would have been a governor or a sultan over any portion of Muslim land that, that contained a significant number of Muslims. And if by some miracle that did happen, it would only be a matter of time before he was replaced with a Muslim. The only way he'd be able to keep his position would be to accept Islam. 
And this would play out the same way in the military. Now, there are accounts of the Muslims using Christian soldiers in their military, but often these Christians were more like mercenaries that the Muslim government paid to fight on their behalf. But there is no way a Christian or a Zoroastrian commander would have military authority over Muslim soldiers, especially when you consider that Muslims believed that death would give them paradise and they considered fighting a religious duty. And speaking of warfare, another thing we have to understand is that there were a lot of conquered people in the caliphate. In fact, it's safe to say that most of the people in these Muslim-dominated lands had been conquered. And let's face it, most people don't like to be conquered. And this led to a lot of pent-up resentment and discontent in the empire. And this would eventually eventually lead to several rebellions in far-off corners of the Muslim empire that would have to be put down during Uthman's reign. Another thing to consider is that the conquests were beginning to slow down. Quite frankly, the Muslims had run out of things to conquer. To the east, they had conquered the Persian Empire right up to the mountainous mountainous regions of modern-day Afghanistan and eastern Iran. And even though Islam would eventually penetrate these areas, these mountains and their unruly, warlike inhabitants and the tribes that lived there were slowing things down. To the west, the Muslims had conquered much of modern-day Egypt. The lands of northern Africa were open and available for the Muslims to venture into if they so desired. However, they were kept busy consolidating their rule over Egypt and fighting off attempts by the Byzantines, the Romans, to take the land back. To the south of Egypt, the Muslims had met stiff resistance in the areas of Nubia and modern-day northern Sudan. The fighters in these areas, the people in these areas, were very tough combatants, and eventually the Muslim administration would have to abandon their attempts to conquer these areas because the casualties were stacking up just too high. To the north of Syria, there was Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. This was the stronghold of the Eastern Roman Empire, what we call the Byzantine Empire today. Omar ibn Khattab, while he was caliph, had discouraged further invasions into this area, and Uthman had continued that policy. Furthermore, since this area of Anatolia was the heart of the Byzantine Empire, it would have been very costly and dangerous for the Muslims to invade. So that really only left the strip of land connecting Europe to the Arabian Peninsula. And this region was flanked on one side by the Black Sea 
and on the other side by the Caspian Sea. This land was covered by the Caucasus Mountains, and it contained the modern nations of Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. And this is where most of the significant military gains took place during Uthman's reign. Unfortunately, this slowdown in conquest led to other problems because up to this time, the primary source for income in the Muslim Caliphate was wealth from conquered nations. But with so few conquests going on, there was much less wealth to go around. And the Muslims still had this huge empire to administer, and that took money. On top of that, Omar ibn al-Khattab, while he was caliph, he had established stipends for various members of the community. And Uthman, when he became caliph, he inherited those responsibilities. And so now the caliphate was having a much harder time finding the money to fund these entitlements. And another problem the caliphate faced was that some Muslims were simply too wealthy. Many of the Muslim soldiers who had taken part in the early battles against the Romans and the Persians Many of them had gained enormous amounts of wealth, more wealth than they could ever spend in an entire lifetime. And so obviously, this hoarding of wealth or this enormous accumulation of wealth in a few members of society would create resentment in those citizens who did not have that money. So that's a summary of some of the obstacles that Uthman faced when he became the caliph. Now, let's take a look at some of the events that took place during Uthman's caliphate. It's important that we understand how these events impacted Uthman's rule, impacted his popularity, and turned a significant portion of the Muslim world or the Muslim empire against him. One of perhaps the best cases of Uthman not using his best judgment or not making the best decision was in the case of Amr ibn As. As you may remember, Amr ibn As was responsible for the conquest of most of Egypt. In fact, he led the first Muslim incursions into Egypt. He was also responsible for conquering the city of Alexandria, which had been the Roman capital of Egypt. And Ahmed ibn As was also responsible for establishing the military outpost of Fustat, which was the future site of the modern city of Cairo. Overall, Ahmed ibn As was feared by his enemies and beloved by his subjects. For instance, the Coptic Christians of Egypt, they loved him because he allowed them to practice their faith, unlike the Romans before them, 
who used to oppress the Coptic Christians for many years because they practiced a different form of Christianity. The Muslims of Egypt loved him because, first of all, Ahmed was a companion of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. He had been a friend of Khalid ibn Walid, and he was also close to the previous caliph, Omar ibn al-Khattab. But most of all, Amr ibn As was loved because he had proven himself to be a successful commander and leader. And as the primary architect of the conquest of Egypt, and as the head of the military in Egypt, Amr ibn As had served as the de facto governor of Egypt for almost five years. However, he had never been given the official title of governor by either Omar or Uthman. So, when Uthman became caliph, he changed things up a bit by sending his cousin Ibn Abi Sahar to be the finance minister of Egypt. Now, let's get a little background on this man. Ibn Abi Sahr. Ibn Abi Sahr was also a companion of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but he was nowhere near the level as Ahmad ibn As, and his story is also very controversial. Ibn Abi Sahr accepted Islam at the hands of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam in Mecca before. The Hijrah, that is before the migration to Medina. But after migrating to Medina, he denounced Islam and returned to the pagan Quraysh in Mecca. And he wound up staying there until the Muslims conquered Mecca. And as you may know, when the Prophet conquered Mecca, he gave amnesty to almost everyone in the city and forgave them for oppressing and fighting the Muslims for so many years. But there were a few people that he did not give amnesty to. Ibn Abi Sahar was one of them. In fact, the Prophet actually ordered his death. However, Ibn Abi Sahar hid in his cousin Uthman's house in Mecca and begged him for protection. These two men, Ibn Abi Sahar and Uthman Ibn Affan, they were not only cousins, they were also foster brothers, meaning that they had been nursed by the same woman. So they had a very close relationship. Uthman interceded on Ibn Abi Sahar's behalf and asked the Prophet to forgive him. And at first, the Prophet denied his request, but Uthman persisted, and finally the Prophet gave in, granted Ibn Abi Sahar amnesty, and accepted his shahada, or testimony of faith. 
as you can see, Ibn Abi Sahar, the one who betrayed and lied on the Prophet, did not command the same respect as someone like Amr ibn al-As. Now, to be fair, we have to accept that Ibn Abi Sahar made a sincere repentance and truly regretted his previous sins. But you can't help but question Uthman's decision to make him finance minister, especially considering the following events. It should come as no surprise to anyone that Amr ibn al-As, the Muslim hero, and Ibn Abi Sahar, the guy who betrayed the Prophet, did not get along. And it wasn't long before they were clashing over how Egypt should be managed. And eventually, the bickering got back to Uthman, and the caliph had to intervene. He recalled them both to Medina and listened to their cases. After hearing their arguments, Uthman decided in favor of his cousin, Ibn Abi Sahar, and ordered Amr ibn al-As to remain in Medina. Ibn Abi Sahar returned to Egypt as the official governor. However, Ibn Abi Sahar was no Amr ibn al-As. He did not have the legend nor the resume of Amr ibn al-As, and neither the Christians nor the Muslims of Egypt loved him the same. As for the Romans, they were still upset about losing Egypt in the first place, but all this time they had been afraid of Amr ibn al-As who had beaten them so many times. But this new guy, Ibn Abi Sahar, they knew nothing about him and saw no reason to fear him. And with Ahmed gone, the Roman saw a perfect opportunity to retake Egypt. In the year 645, the Romans launched a massive fleet and invaded Alexandria from the sea. Ibn Abi Sahar, the new governor of Egypt, did not yet command the respect of his military. He was not used to fighting the Romans, and he was taken completely by surprise when they invaded. Within a matter of days, the Romans had recaptured the city of Alexandria. When Uthman found out, he immediately sent Amr ibn al-As back to Egypt, leading an army of 15,000 soldiers. Now, Amr ibn al-As, on the other hand, he was used to fighting the Romans, and he knew exactly how to deal with them. In the early days of the Muslim expansion, we had mentioned how the Muslim bows and arrows were always inferior to the weapons, to the bows and arrows of their enemies, the Romans and the Persians. But things were different now. The Muslim archers had always 
been better with accuracy and skill than their Roman and Persian enemies. But now that they also had good materials, they were almost unbeatable. And Ahmed ibn al-Ast used his archers to great effect. The Romans always preferred to fight outside their cities and away from their forts. Prophet Muhammad used a similar strategy during the Battle of Uhud, which was the second battle between the Muslims and the Quraysh. Amr had also participated in the Battle of Uhud, but at that time he was fighting against the Muslims and fighting for the pagan Quraysh. So Amr, he was ready for the Romans when they lined up for battle in the open fields outside of Alexandria. Amr ordered his archers to launch volley after volley of arrows into the Roman ranks. And all the hapless Romans could do was try their best to protect themselves under their shields. But the onslaught of the Muslim arrows still wiped out nearly a quarter of their ranks. After several hours of this, when the Romans had been sufficiently weakened, Amr ordered the firing to stop. Then he commanded his soldiers to draw their swords and lower their lances and led them in a massive charge against the Romans. The fighting was fierce, but very brief. Within a few hours, the Roman army was annihilated, and Ahmed ibn al-As had conquered Alexandria for the second time. Spoiler alert, it would not be his last time. Upon conquering Alexandria, Ahmed ibn al-As learned that many of the local Christians of Alexandria had assisted the Romans in their invasion. After all, these Christians, these Coptic Christians primarily, they were loyal to Ahmed ibn As and they loved him, but they had no connection whatsoever with Ibn Abi Sahar. Nonetheless, Amr still levied higher taxes on the entire Christian community of Alexandria as punishment for their betrayal. Now, Amr felt sure that this victory would prove to Uthman that his presence was needed in Alexandria. He felt certain that Uthman would appoint him or reinstate him as the governor of Egypt. Instead, as soon as word reached Uthman of Amr's victory, he recalled Amr back to Medina and confirmed his cousin Ibn Abi Sahra as governor of Egypt. This final insult turned Amr ibn al-As against Uthman for good, and he would spend the next several years trying to undermine Ibn Abi Sahra's rule in Egypt. Now, these questionable moves by Uthman made Ibn Abi Sahra anxious as well. For one, he saw how easy it was for his cousin to replace one governor with another. Job security was something that Ibn Abi Sahra just could not be assured of. 
Secondly, Ibn Abi Sahra also realized just how beloved Amr was by the people of Egypt. So he had to find a way to prove himself to both Uthman and his Egyptian subjects. And so Ibn Abi Sahra thought an invasion of North Africa would be a good idea. He requested and was granted permission to invade the North African lands to the west of Egypt. These lands were, at this time, still controlled by the Romans. Ibn Abi Sahara led a successful campaign across the northern coast of Africa, and he ultimately conquered Tripolitania, which is modern-day Tripoli, the capital of Libya, and he forced the locals to pay him a large tribute. Ibn Abi Sahra returned to Egypt in the year 648, victorious and loaded down with wealth from his exploits. Unfortunately, Ibn Abi Sahra failed to leave a garrison in Libya, and as soon as he left, the Romans simply moved back in and reoccupied the area. Still, Uthman was pleased with his cousin's victories and allowed him to keep a portion of the wealth and the tribute from Tripolitania. And then he ordered his uncle and future caliph, Marwan ibn al-Hakam, to distribute the rest. However, Marwan ibn al-Hakam mismanaged the money and squandered it with some very unwise spending. And this brought criticism and grumbling from the older Muslims who perhaps still preferred Amr ibn al-As over the current governor. Now despite his shortcomings, to be fair, Ibn Abi Sahara would eventually grow into his role and develop into a more competent commander, as we'll see in later episodes. And even though this was a rocky start to Uthman's administration, most of his decisions turned out pretty good. One of his best decisions was making another one of his cousins, Muawiyah ibn Abu Sufyan, governor of the Levant. In the next episode, inshallah, we will discuss Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan in the Levant and his attempt to build the first Muslim navy. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial. Let me just go and get into some administrative discussion regarding the Islamic History Podcast. Just so you know, the next couple of episodes, will we will continue the discussion of the early part of Uthman's Caliphate. He ruled for about 12 years and is essentially divided into two sections of six years each. The first six years was relatively peaceful, and the last six years were relatively turbulent. So we're going to spend these next couple of episodes, episodes, inshallah, discussing his first six years. 
what we are really trying to do in this segment where we cover the first six years of his caliphate is try to understand the events that turned some segments of the Muslim community, uh, the Muslim population against him. And some of this may be kind of difficult because we Muslims often have the habit of lionizing the companions of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We make them larger than life without realizing that they were human and they made mistakes. So, in order to try to give you a more complete picture, I'm going to have to highlight highlight some unpleasant parts of Uthman's leadership, and you saw some of that today. And there is more to come, where we bring forth some of the things that Uthman did that were mistakes on his part. That doesn't mean he deserved to be killed, which is ultimately what happened. I hope that wasn't a spoiler alert. I kind of thought most people knew that. But still, I want you to understand how things got to that point where people are willing to kill him. But for right now, let me just try to help you understand that there is going to be a shift in the story. There's a shift in the Muslim world anyway, around the time that Uthman's caliphate is challenged by his opponents, where his leadership is challenged. There's a a shift in the story where things start to get really ugly in the Muslim world. And what I believe is going to happen, and actually what I want to reflect in a certain way, I want the tone of these episodes to also reflect that ugliness. So far, is there's been a lot of uplifting things. It's this small, ragtag bunch of feisty Muslims fighting against all odds and trying to establish this religion against two of the most powerful empires in the world and just carving out a segment of the world of their own by hook or by crook. And not by crook, but you know what I mean. <laughs> against all odds, they are just determined to survive. And that's an inspiring story for Muslims. But when those early years go by, when we get into Uthman's caliphate, especially the second half of his caliphate, things change and it's it's not so pretty anymore. And Muslim turns against Muslim and the fracturing of the Muslim world begins. And for better or for worse, I, ha- I have a feeling this podcast or these stories that I tell will reflect that. It's going to become kind of dark before it gets better. Inshallah, unfortunately, this is history. I'm just giving you the facts. So one other thing I want to let you know in, um, before we wrap up is that I will... Well, these these stories, these in um, Uthman's um, caliphate, they won't be done in exact chronological order. So I'm not going to say, well, this happened in the year 645, and then this happened, and then this happened, and the year 646, this will happen. I'm not going to do that because it's very hard to understand how all of these events played together to build up this resentment towards Uthman. 
And instead, what I'm going to do is tackle related subjects so you can see how certain things happen in the pocket. So in today's episode, we primarily just focused on Uthman and Egypt. But these events that we discussed took place over several years. But I condensed them down into one episode so you can see how so many things were so many so many related events turned people against Uthman. Primarily, he lost the support of one of the most influential generals and commanders, Amr ibn al-As. So it's a different way of trying to tackle a very complex story of a very complex people in a very, very large period of time and across a large swath of land. Inshallah, hopefully, we will be, we will be uh, successful in this. So I just want to wrap it up by encouraging you to visit the show notes page, which will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman1, and Uthman is spelled U-T-H-M-A-N, then the number one. When you go to the show notes page, you will see lots of things there. The main thing you're going to find is the transcript for this episode. Basically, my notes kind of made into a transcript. I don't know how important that will be for you. You may or may not want it, but it's there in case you just want to look at it. Who knows? Also, there'll be a book recommendation I want you to check out. One of the books that I use in creating this story about the history of Islam is a book called The Chronology of Islam by H.U. Rahman. It's available on Amazon. There's a link there in case you want to check it out. Also on the show notes page, there will be some things you can do there to help support the the show, inshallah, and I hope you feel inclined to do so. And another thing you'll find there will be an article written by Sister Subhana Wahaj, who is the daughter of Imam Suraj Wahaj. And this article she wrote is called, I Don't Need Any Reminders. It's about how sometimes people overreact when they are given advice, particularly Islamic advice, and it gives the advisor's advice on giving advice. I hope that wasn't too confusing. But the article is not available now. It's going to come out, I believe. Well, when I say now, this show is coming out on, on Monday morning. So it will not be available on the at the day that this show comes out Monday morning. But I believe it will be available on Tuesday or Wednesday. I think Tuesday. So if you are getting this episode after Tuesday, then you're good to go. Get it before Tuesday, then just come back later, inshallah, a couple of days or so, go back and see it. And all of that will be on the show notes page, okay? So you'll see the link to that article on the the show notes page, inshallah. And the final thing that will be on the show notes page, which is why I really encourage you to go check it out, will be a link to the YouTube video for this week's favorite nasheed. If you are a longtime listener of the show, you know that most of this season of the Islamic History Podcast, I focused or I tried to give you a new nasheed after the end of each show. And there's a new nasheed I discovered today and it's pretty nice. I like it. It's called Good Life by this young Muslim singer 
named Harris J. So you'll be able to hear it right when we close out. And if you go to the show notes page, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman1, you will actually be able to see the video for it. And I encourage you to support his music if you like it. I, I don't I don't know him. I'm just saying that if you like the music, then, you know, go listen to it on YouTube, inshallah. And I hope you enjoy it if that's something that you like to do. So with that, we are going to wrap it up and we're going to bounce on out of here to Good Life by Harris J. Until next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Every day is like a brand new story with a written lights. And no matter the weather, it's gonna, gonna be alright. I know my life ain't perfect, but I don't have to worry. Cause I've got all that I need right here in my, in my life. I know my life ain't perfect, but I like the way it's going. Cause I've got all Thankful and trying to understand That the more I learn I want to leave it all in your head Cause I know he'll always take good care of me You've given me a good life A good life each day, yeah Good life, oh good life Allah, I want to thank you for the good life Yes, I want to thank you, oh Allah Thank you for the good For the good life, I leave it all in your hands. I know my life ain't perfect, 
Thank you for the good life.